The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Continuing our summer series, looking at a number of psalms, thinking about this relatively brief psalm, one of the songs of ascents, let us hear God's word. Out of the depth, I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice, let your ear, let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Father, we ask for you to open our eyes and our hearts to your word. May you apply it to us. May we be like those who tremble at your word, out of trust in you and out of a desire to grow in your grace. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. The great 19th century preacher, Phillips Brooks, was renowned for his gentle spirit and enormous patience. But one day, a friend walked into his study and found him pacing back and forth, terribly agitated. He was shocked. Dr. Brooks, what on earth is the matter, he asked. I'm in a hurry, he said, but God is not. You've probably heard variations on that story before. I'm in a hurry, but God is not. Isn't that the way it so often seems to be with our trust in the Lord and with God's ways? We know that God's purposes and God's timing are not the same as ours. And so learning to wait on the Lord is a lifelong lesson for every Christian. We never stop needing to grow and learning to wait on the Lord in trust and dependence, and submission to his sovereign will. A young person waiting for marriage, a couple waiting for a child, someone who is ill waiting for improved health, or even waiting for death, waiting for the end of some agonizing difficulty in your life, waiting for a job, waiting for a different job, waiting in the midst of a difficult marriage or difficult relationship to a child. There are all kinds of waiting that we all experience, circumstances both large and small in our lives. And we know that most of us don't like to wait. We Americans in particular are an impatient people. 
but I don't think we're that different from anyone else in the world, of course. For me, I don't even like to wait five minutes in a checkout line at the store. I always, you know, want to get in the express lane if I can. And so no wonder it's hard going for us to learn the spiritual lessons of waiting on God and trusting in him and submitting to his sovereign will. So what do we learn from Psalm 130 about waiting on God? First of all, let us see the context of our waiting is the sin and suffering of this present world. The context of our waiting is the sin and suffering of this present world. Now, the emphasis of Psalm 130 is the context of sin, particularly. This is the sixth of the seven penitential psalms, as they're called. And this psalm is about guilt and forgiveness. And it begins in verse 1 with this cry, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. The Israelites were not particularly a seafaring nation, but the imagery here is that of being in the deep water. It's reminiscent of Psalm 69, which also begins in this way. It says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out, calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail, looking for my God. The psalm goes on, because of those who hate him without reason. So the context of Psalm 69 is different than then Psalm 130. But the imagery is there. Out of the depths, in deep water, crying out to God. O Lord, hear my voice. Listen to my cry. And then the reason becomes clear in verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? So the problem is the the problem of sin. But this psalm is a, is a beautiful declaration of the gospel. And verse 4 states it in very clear terms, but with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Later on in the psalm, we'll hear in verse 7, with the Lord is full redemption. So it's a psalm that is a, is a gospel psalm. Martin Luther called it a Pauline psalm. In other words, it's like the Apostle Paul could have written this. So the emphasis of Psalm 130 is especially crying out to God in our sin and then knowing the free forgiveness offered. The Lord doesn't keep a record of sins in the sense of by his grace, he freely forgives our sin. And so we could not stand because of our sin. We could not lift up our eyes to the Lord. But, verse 4, with you there is forgiveness. And the result of that is, therefore, you are feared. The fruit of a right relationship with God through the gospel is a heart that fears the Lord in that right sense of fear, not cringing dread, but, but reverential awe. As Spurgeon preached on this psalm, he paraphrased this and said, with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are loved, trusted, and served. 
In other words, that whole full-orbed sense of fearing the Lord in the sense of loving him, trusting him, submitting to him. So the context of this psalm is the problem of sin and the free offer of the gospel. But there is also in Scripture the frequent theme of waiting in relationship to suffering. For example, Romans 8 talks about that. In in verse 18, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And then later on he says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul is saying, even those who are redeemed, even those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Spirit dwelling in them, even we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. Likewise, 1 Peter 1 talks about this same waiting in trials. Peter says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So that idea of even though they have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, there's coming a day when the fruit of that will be shown when, when it's to the praise and glory and honor of Christ. So, Scripture makes it clear that the sin and the suffering in this present world are the very context in which we are called to wait upon God. And the application of this point, I think I would put in this way. We should not be at all surprised by our constant need to learn to wait on the Lord. Because of this context that we all live in every day, our own remaining sin, the sin around us in society, the suffering that all of us are part of in this present life, it shouldn't surprise us that we are called to wait on the Lord. It's just part and parcel of this life. It's part of the pilgrim journey every Christian faces throughout his or her life. When I was on vacation, I was reading an account, a book written long ago called Donovan's Expedition. And it's about the war with Mexico and the expedition of what was called the Army of the West at that point that President James Polk called for volunteers and The Missourians volunteered out there at what was the far reaches of the United States at that point. And in 1846, they mustered in Fort Leavenworth with these 800 Missouri volunteers under Colonel Donovan. And also, uh, there there were about 800 regular troops called Dragoons at that point, the forerunner of the American cavalry. This expedition of 1,600 soldiers sets out from Fort Leavenworth to take what was then the northern parts of Mexico, and they headed for Santa Fe, 800 miles across what was then called the Great American Desert, because that's what the Midwest was thought of in those days. 
bring up this point because as this big, long train of troops and supplies snaked their way out there across this uh, remote terrain, what would you expect would occur? Problems? Two-thirds or three-quarters of the animals and horses and mules died in the journey out there before they got to Santa Fe. Soldiers died along the way of sickness and accidents and things like that. There, were, there weren't any really great uh, battles or anything. There were a few Native American skirmishes here and there. My point is, when you set out with 1,600 soldiers on an 800-mile expedition, for the most part by foot, across rough, uninhabited terrain... It's not surprising that problems are going to arise. It's not a problem. It's not surprising people are going to get sick and some of them are going to die. And so it is with the Christian life and experience. There are going to be times of being in the depths. Maybe because of your own sin and your struggle with sin. And maybe as I just point out to you that the gospel in this psalm maybe. The word that you need to hear from the Lord tonight is that there is free forgiveness. That the gospel is a gospel of grace through Jesus Christ. The psalmist writing this was looking ahead and not having the kind of fulfillment that we understand with Jesus Christ having come in the flesh. Maybe the the word that you need to hear is there is free forgiveness. And... The waiting that you need to do needs to be waiting upon the Lord and trusting in his word. The context of our waiting is the sin and suffering of this world. Secondly, the object of our waiting is the Lord himself based on his word. Verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. So the object of our waiting is the Lord himself. Now it's important that we understand this because we have to ask ourselves, what specifically is the psalmist waiting for here? It's not deliverance from suffering. It's not deliverance from trouble that's in view here. Although that's not wrong to wait and to long for. It's not wrong to uh, pray and to seek the Lord and ask him to remove troubles and trials in your life. It's also important that you understand that the psalmist wasn't specifically waiting for forgiveness. As if forgiveness was something he had to earn or look for or wait for. No, the, the whole sense of this psalm is that there was great assurance. The psalmist had assurance of forgiveness. He's just said in verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. The psalmist had assurance of forgiveness. What specifically the psalm was waiting for was God himself in the sense of restored fellowship and communion with God. In other words, the psalmist was waiting in faith for the intimacy with God that follows forgiveness. We all know that when we sin, it affects our communion with God. The Christian is never completely cut off from fellowship with God. We know that. But still, our sin affects our life in God. And the psalmist, I believe, and I'm not making this up. This is what other commentators say. 
comes to verse 5, and he's saying, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. He's saying, I know the forgiveness from my sins. I've been in the depths because of my sin, and now my posture is one of waiting and expectancy. Based on the promises of your word, and like the watchman waits for the morning, I am waiting. I am expecting deeper communion with my God. So the object of the psalmist's waiting was God himself. And the ultimate object of our waiting is always to likewise be the Lord himself. Nothing less than that. Doesn't it remind you of Hebrews 11 when it talks about the roll call of faith of the Old Testament? And in verse 6 it says, Without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. What is it to come to God by faith? It is to come with an expectancy of meeting God, of meeting with God, of being rewarded by God, not in earthly ways, but the reward of God himself. And then the author of Hebrews goes through Noah and Abraham and Moses, and Moses especially is a good example of that, where in verse 26 we're told that Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. And what was that? By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. That is God. The application of this point is that it is right and good to seek the Lord for the answers that we might desire in this life for the healing of sicknesses, for uh, the circumstances of our lives to change, for the fulfillment of our desires in these earthly things. It is right and good to seek the Lord for those answers, but the ultimate thing we must seek is God himself. And God gives himself to us through his word. Recall that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So what we are waiting for, what we are longing for, what we, what we want more and more is the fullness of God in Jesus Christ and to enter into a deeper experience of that day by day. Waiting means trusting in God and submitting to God, yes, but it also means treasuring God above all else. And I wonder if we can say that we have that same posture of verses 5 and 6 when it comes to fellowship with God. Is that the description of our desires? I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. Is that how you are waiting in expectancy to meet God, to fellowship with God? to come to corporate worship and to expect to meet God, to come to your daily time of prayer and Bible study and to to know that you're going to meet with God, to go about your work and in some sense to have God be part of that as, as you seek him and ask him to bless and to glorify himself by what you do. Often, it's in the very experience of loss in this life that God brings home to us our desperate need for him. 
In other words, we need his presence every minute. And we often don't realize that until experiences of loss and trial and suffering make that very evident to us. Isn't that the way it is? Recently, I've had some experiences of visiting my dad, who's been hospitalized a lot over the last three months. And sometimes when we come home from seeing him, I'm just in grief. That kind of grief just removes all the kind of superficial things that tend to distract me and excite me and I enjoy about life. I think part of grief is not enjoying anything. But it's interesting, what is the one thing that grief can't take away from you? And that is the deep knowledge of God and the joy and the peace we have in God. And, and, and that's a reality. And it's almost like God sometimes strips bare all these other things that so take our attention and effort, and he leaves us with himself alone. And certainly that's what we'd say he was doing with Job. When you say, what was God doing with Job? And he never told Job what he was doing. But in his deep purposes, God was teaching Job about himself. And that's where the book ends up. Job with a deeper knowledge of God. The object of our waiting is always to be God himself. But third, our perseverance in waiting springs from our ultimate hope. Our perseverance in waiting springs from our ultimate hope. Or we might say it this way, the staying power of our waiting springs from our hope in God. Verses 7 and 8. O Israel, Put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Here the psalmist, who has found free forgiveness in God's grace, and has entered into that gospel experience of knowing forgiveness, the psalmist now turns around, turns to to those around him, to Israel, and encourages them to put their hope in God too. He calls out to Israel, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. The King James has plenteous redemption. What a great phrase, a phrase originating with Coverdale. With him is plenteous redemption. And then there's this future-looking aspect to redemption. Verse 8, he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. That future-looking aspect then kind of ties it all up from, you know, the sense that salvation is past. We have been saved by God's grace through faith. We are being saved as he sanctifies us in this life, and we will finally one day be fully saved. Scripture includes all three aspects, past, present, future. And this part of the psalm is looking ahead to that that final fulfillment. He will redeem Israel from all their sins. So the psalmist is crying out, join me in this incredible knowledge and experience of God's mercy that one day will finally be totally fulfilled. And the forward-looking hope, of course, shines even brighter in the blazing revelation of Jesus Christ when he finally comes. But the point is, there is coming a day when the context of our waiting, the sin and suffering of this life, will end. We will no longer have to wait in that sense. And the persevering power of our waiting comes from this ultimate hope. Again, the New Testament talks about this at length. Romans 8, 
what I earlier read, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Wait, haven't we already been adopted? Haven't we already been redeemed? Yes, but Paul's talking about it in the final sense, the final glorification. And he says, the Christian experience is that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly until that great day. Likewise, Peter says the same thing. He talks about your faith being tested like gold. And the conclusion he comes to in verse 7 is that it may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor. When? When Jesus Christ is revealed again and again. The scripture brings us to that great hope that is to fill us. In other words, we're waiting because we're on a journey. But one day we're going to arrive at that destination and the waiting will be over with. When Patty and I were flying back from Texas this year, in El Paso, we got, our flight was delayed because of a mechanical problem. They had to bring in another plane, and of course, uh, that ended up being later than they thought. And in Dallas, we went running with, our, with everything and just made it to the gate in time to miss our next plane, of course. And then, you know, I had to go to this gate and that gate and the next gate. And again, waiting isn't my strength, but we waited around. And, but my point of the story is this. We got on the next plane, and we didn't, didn't have seats next to one another. So I was sitting in the back of the plane with two guys next to me. And, you know, we were all telling our stories of woe. And after hearing their stories, I thought, well, I've had a pretty good day of it, really. Because uh, one guy was from California, and he was stuck on the tarmac in the last plane he was in for a long time without power or any air conditioning. So it got very hot in Dallas in the summer in the sun. And not only that, but his children and grandkids were already at the Baltimore airport waiting for them with their little ones. So they were going to wait hours extra with little kids in the airport. Of course, that, that's no fun. So that was a worse story. And then the other one had one of those ironic stories that he was on this certain flight, but he purchased an upgrade because he got to the airport early so he could leave on an earlier flight. Of course, that flight did not make it. In the meantime, of course, he couldn't get back on his original flight, so he ended up being on an even later flight. So the irony is he tries to get earlier and gets later. Well, we were telling these stories. But my point in all this is, uh, okay, there are these trials along the way. And on the journey, we're talking about our woes and so forth. What was important was the destination. You know, you can sit in the back of the plane, which isn't really the nicest place to sit because of various things. And when we got to the airport, which we finally got there, I noticed that the guy on my left, his grandkids were there to greet him. And the other guy got there as well. So we all got to the destination. That's what enables you to wait. That's what enables you to persevere because the destination must be kept in view. So whatever the waiting is that you're being called by God to do this week or this month, whether it's a difficult time of waiting for you or not, the thing that gives that waiting, your waiting, its staying power, is the hope set before you in the full redemption promised in Jesus Christ. That's what we must keep in view. Well, let me conclude with just some questions to ask yourself prayerfully as you wait upon the Lord, kind of tying this all together. I have six here. I'm just going to read them to you to keep in mind. In other words, as you are called to wait on the Lord, 
think about these things. One is, in what way is God calling me to live for his glory today? You see, we get so tied up in waiting for something to take place or something to change about our lives that we lose sight of living for God's glory today. How can I live for God's glory today? Romans 12, verse 1. Offer your bodies a living sacrifice. Secondly, how can I more fully trust the Lord as I wait? And especially, what promises should I take to heart? Notice the psalmist says, I wait for the Lord and in his word I put my hope. We need to trust more deeply in the Lord. How can I more fully trust the Lord? And specifically, what promises do I need as like the pegs to attach my faith to? Thirdly, how can I serve others and take my eyes off myself? Notice the psalmist goes from being in the depths. He's in the depths, in a sense, by himself. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. But by the end of the psalm, the Lord has brought him to the point of thinking about others around him. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. How can I serve others and take my eyes off myself? Fourth, what good things should I meditate on to stop being preoccupied with myself? What can I meditate on to not be so preoccupied with myself and with my life? I love Colossians 3 when it says, Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Set your affection on things above. What do I need to meditate on? What do I need to give thanks for? What do I need to focus on? What truth about God and who God is, his character, what he has done? What does the Bible tell me that I can focus on? Number five, in what ways is God building Christ-like character in my life? In what ways is God building Christ-like character in my life through this waiting? Again, we could go to Romans 5, where Paul talks about perseverance, proven character, hope. How is God building Christ in my life? He is. He is using these experiences in our lives. And finally, how does this situation make me more deeply long for heaven and the glory of Jesus Christ? How does this situation make me more deeply long for heaven? You know, waiting and having to wait on the Lord and the experiences of this life we know are guaranteed by God to teach us and to make us better prepared for heaven. Christians are the only ones who really want heaven because they want Jesus Christ himself. In her book on being single and loving the single life she never intended, author Connolly Gillum writes about the universal longing we all have for home. It's an interesting account she makes of this. And in this life, she says... We all get tastes of the fulfilling of that longing for home. We get it in family holidays. We get it with close friends. We get it on maybe a special vacation or things like that. But she says, the final fulfillment awaits in the joys of heaven. And she applies that principle to the waiting 
of unintended and unwanting and unwanted singleness in her life. But it likewise applies to any circumstance of waiting on God. We long for and we look forward to our final home in Jesus Christ. With him is plenteous redemption. O Israel, O Christians, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. Father, we pray that you would stir up our hearts. We so easily become dull. We so easily become apathetic, not all that moved by your word and by the glories of Jesus Christ. We grieve over that, Lord. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask for a fresh outpouring of your spirit in our hearts and minds and lives. Stir us that we might seek Jesus Christ this week for the areas of each one of our lives where we are called to wait upon you. Oh, Lord, help us to truly wait for you, to long for you, to have you as our chief treasure and delight. And may your name be praised through our lives in some way as we wait upon you. Through Jesus Christ we pray.